And what a good day to be in God's house. If you've got your Bible, we're going to dive right in. We're starting in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. What we're going to see today, if you've been with us throughout our series, we, we've been working through the book of Ephesians verse by verse. We have 16 verses today to cover and not a lot of time to do it, so buckle up. We're going to hustle. Uh, but, but what we're going to see, what we're going to experience for those who've been with us over the past six weeks is this is the great pivot. The first three chapters of Ephesians uh, are very Godward, very theological, establishing who God is and, and how powerful he is, how great he is, how good he is. And Starting in our first verse here in chapter 4, the Apostle Paul who wrote the book of Ephesians, he's going to pivot from from making it Godward to making it earthly, to making it, man, right down to the practical everyday life that we live. He's going to begin talking about what life should look like. And so over the next six weeks, we're going to get real practical. We're going to get real nitty-gritty. Now, here's what you need to be warned about. Godward stuff sometimes is easy. Uh, because it takes the attention off of us, man. And there's maybe not as much conviction. And, man, sometimes it can build us up. But sometimes we can kind of breathe because, hey, we're talking about God. Well, the next six weeks, get ready because we're going to talk about you. We're going to get up in your grill. We're going to get up in my grill. We're going to be on our toes because how we live matters. And that's what Paul's going to spend the next three chapters. We're going to spend the next six weeks looking at the way that we live matters, that, that, that God has laid out for us in his word principles and guidelines for a life that we are called to as believers. And so join me as we dive into Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you. Now remember, Paul is writing this letter from prison. He, he, he's been arrested for preaching the gospel. He's been arrested for telling people about this God that he's just spent three chapters writing about. Eventually, he is going to die for this. He's going to be beheaded by the Roman Empire because he's been telling people about Jesus. And so Paul writes from prison to say, look, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. I am living this life that I'm talking about. I'm going to start telling you how to live, but I'm not telling you something that I haven't lived for myself. I'm not asking you to do something that I haven't already invested my whole life in on my own. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you. In other words, urge you means this matters. This next thing I'm about to tell you, this isn't something that you can get around to one day. This isn't something that, that man, yeah, you need to file this away in the back of your mind. And man, let, let keep this for future reference. He says, move this to the top of your priority list. Man, this is urgent. In other words, this needs to happen now. He says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Let's talk about that word calling for just a minute. Because to understand this verse, to understand what Paul is talking about, we have to understand calling. Now, a lot of times we use the word calling in reference to specific ministries, to to, to specific professions, to specific giftings that, that, man, I was called into ministry, that I have a calling to do this. I have a calling to lead worship. I have a calling to honor God in such and such a way. And I don't think there's a, that's a bad use of terminology at all. I believe God does call us to specific things. I, I remember when I knew that I was called into ministry. So I'm, I'm not knocking that at all. That's not the type of calling I believe that Paul is talking about here. Paul has spent three chapters telling us how awesome God is. 
How incredible our salvation is. How amazing the grace that he's bestowed upon us is. So he's not talking about the specific calling right now that God has placed in you that may look different than the person next to you. He's talking about the general calling that we all have to be Christians, to be little Christs, to to look like him, to embody him, to live like him. So he says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now, one of my favorite illustrations for the Word of God is that it's like a mirror. That the book of James compares the Word of God to a mirror. That, that we look into the mirror to see what we look like. And, and sometimes when we look in the mirror, we see things we don't like, right? Uh, on my wedding day, I see all of my wedding pictures. One thing jumps out at me. It's not how beautiful my wife was, although she was, and it should be what jumps out at me. Uh, it's not what an amazing memory is I have of that day. Uh, here's what I see when I look at my wedding pictures. My tie is crooked. <laughs> That's all I see. Every one of my wedding pictures, my tie is crooked. I had five boys, five homies, five groomsmen who flew to Pennsylvania to be in my wedding, and none of them loved me enough to say, yo, fix your tie, bro. <laughs> no, I'm not bitter. I had a pastor who paid for our honeymoon who went to Pennsylvania on his own dime, who sacrificed greatly for us. And he didn't love me enough to say, yo, fix your tie, dude. No, I'm not bitter. Uh, so, so, so when we, here's the problem. I trusted other people around me instead of looking into the mirror for myself. If I'd have looked at the mirror myself, I'd have realized, my tie's a little bit off. I need to fix this. I'm going to look at these pictures for the rest of my life. But I didn't do that. So now I get to see my janky tie every time I look at my wedding pictures. Some of us in this room right now aren't looking in the mirror of God's word. And because we're not looking in the mirror, we have no idea what simple, small, little thing could be easily fixed if we would simply see our reflection in the mirror of the word of God. This thing is powerful. This thing is important. This thing was given to us as a tool to help us recognize where our life gets a little bit off. Because all of our lives get a little bit off. All of us have a crooked tie from time to time. Hopefully for you, it's not the most important moment of your life. But we all have a crooked tie in life. And God has blessed us with the perfect mirror with a mirror that reveals to us all these little imperfections, all these little things that don't look quite like Jesus, if we'll just look in the mirror, we'll be able to realize what needs to be fixed. And so Paul says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. As I studied this verse and this passage this week, I saw some things that maybe aren't worthy of the calling I've received. I've had some conviction of some things that need to be tweaked, some things that need to be straightened out, some things that need to be moved around a little bit in my life. And I believe that was the intent the Apostle Paul had when he wrote this verse, that we would look into it. And if we see, you know what, here's some things I've tolerated Here's some things I've accepted. Here's some things that I've procrastinated, some things that I've put off, some things that I've said, you know what, I'll get to that later. And he says, no, I urge you. 
Move it to the top of the priority list. Quit putting it off. Quit waiting for it. Quit saying, one day I'll get to that place. He says, I urge you, Christian. I urge you, brothers and sisters. I urge you, person of God. I urge you, someone who's received the incredible salvation that only comes through Jesus Christ to begin living a life worthy of the calling you've received. Now, this has to be tempered with grace. We're not saying that if you have any mistakes in your life that you're a failure as a believer. We're not saying that you're missing it and you're going to hell. What we're saying is this. We've got to quit justifying our junk. Right? doesn't mean we're not going to have junk. There's going to be other junk that comes up. It's just saying deal with the junk you got now. Right? Like go ahead and blow your nose and get rid of that booger because you know there's more boogers coming. But that don't mean you need to let that one hang out real long. You saw it in the mirror. Let's go ahead and remove that from the picture. Right? Amen. Hallelujah. That's good preaching. But here's the biggest application I want you to take from this. It's not even what is the life change God wants for you right now. Although obviously that's important if the Holy Spirit is communicating something. If he's convicting, then receive that and apply it. The biggest application I want you to take is this. Look in the dang mirror. Start looking in the mirror. Don't wait till next Sunday to look in the mirror again. You know how jacked up you look all week if you don't look in the mirror between now and Sunday? Man, you know how messed up you'll be at work? How, how, how goofy you'll look at camp if you don't look in the mirror, right? Like, look in the mirror this week. Man, look in the mirror every day. Allow God to speak to you. Allow him to reveal some things to you. Allow him to begin showing you, man, this hair is out of place. Man, that, that's not a good color on you, dog. Like, you don't need to wear that, right? Like, just allow him to speak to you through the mirror of his word. Amen? Amen. Real quick Father's Day application. I'm not making this message about dads, but I want to say this real quickly because I think it's important. Dads, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. I think there's very few callings in life that are higher than the calling of a father. Very few responsibilities in life that are greater than than the responsibility of fatherhood. Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Model it for your kids. Live it for your kids. You're not going to be perfect. None of us are. I certainly am not. My kid's three and two, and I can already begin to see my junk, man, shaping itself in them. I can already begin to see, like, my habits and my weaknesses and and how that's affecting them, and that's not okay. But live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Work on that stuff. Deal with that stuff. Strive to grow as a father, to be better, to improve that relationship with your kids. Live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Amen? Amen. We got one verse down. We got 15 to go. We're going to have to move a lot faster, Pastor Troy. Let's go. Verse 2, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Okay, we all just failed right there, right? (laughs) Thanks a lot, Paul. Be completely humble, be completely gentle, be completely patient, bearing with one another in love. I don't know about you, but I'm like 0 for 3, Um, right? But, But he's called us to humility. He's called us to gentleness. He's called us to patience. In other words, the way that we live matters, right? These are the things we're supposed to embody. These are the things we're supposed to aspire to. Verse 3 says, make every effort. Everybody say every effort. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. 
The Apostle Paul is speaking right here to the church. And he says, one of the most important things you can do, church, is to be unified. Is to be together. He says, make every effort. Not, man, somewhere on the to-do list. Not, man, this is kind of important. He says, make every stinking effort you can to stay unified. In other words, man, when we're gossiping about each other, and we think it's just some funny little thing, but we know if we said it to their face, it wouldn't be some funny little thing. Don't say it. Why? Because when you do, you're eroding unity. You're not making every effort. That means we got to discipline our speech. That means we got to discipline our ears. And when somebody else is saying that to us, we got to be, you know what, man, I love you, but I don't need to hear this. You need to take that to them. Because I'm going to make every effort to keep unity. I'm going to make every effort to protect my church family. I'm going to make every effort to do this thing the right way because God says it's important that, man, we've got to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Verse 4, 5, and 6, he, he, he's going to use this word and, uh, many, many times and watch it. He says there is one. Everybody say one. One, one body and one spirit. Say one. one. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. You got to miss that last one. One, sorry. One. There we go. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Three verses. He uses this word one seven times. Seven times. Three times to refer to the Godhead. There's one Spirit. There's one Lord referring to Jesus Christ. There's one God and Father of all. So our God is three in. Right? We just sang about it. Here we see it in verse form. And then four times talking about the salvation that that one God who appears in three forms has given to us. He says there's one faith. There's one baptism, there's one body, there's one hope, there is one. What message do you think Paul's trying to get across in these verses? The oneness of the body of Christ. That we're supposed to be one. That means we're supposed to be one male and female. We're supposed to be one young and old. We're not supposed to have a church for one generation. We're supposed to be multi-generational. We're supposed to be one black, white, Hispanic, Asian, Native American, every color, right? We're supposed to be one. There's not supposed to be a church for one specific demographic. We're supposed to be one. And we could apply this in a lot of different ways, man. But God has called us to be one. He's called us to be one. He's called us to be one. And seven times the Apostle Paul uses this word one to drive home the point. We're called to be one. And then he says to this, but to each one, one more time. To each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. In other words, and this can be difficult to process and understand, but in other words, the grace that God has given to the person sitting next to you might be different than the grace that he's given to you. And we don't like that because we like everything to be fair, don't we? We like everything to be even. We like everybody to get the same allowance. We like everybody to have the same curfew, right? Like we like everything to be the same. But the word of God says that God has apportioned, Jesus has apportioned grace to each one of us. So some of us have a different portion of grace than others do. Why? I don't know. I'm not God. Uh, Here's what I do know. I know that when my father came to Jesus, God delivered him from addiction to alcohol, addiction to drugs, addiction to pornography, delivered him from a whole lot of things when he came to Jesus. Just like that, it was gone. I know a whole lot of people that did not have that same experience. Why did my dad receive that grace 
when for a whole lot of people, deliverance is not an instantaneous moment, but it's a process that they have to go through. I don't know. I'll give you my theory. My theory is my dad was too weak to get free of it on his own, and God had to do it because he couldn't do it on his own. But I don't know. Maybe God had a different reason. But I know this. We have got to take the grace we've been given and use it because his grace is sufficient for me. His grace is abundant for me. His grace is more than enough. Even if somebody else maybe got more grace and maybe I can look at them and say, how come they got that gift? How come they got that opportunity? How come they got that job? How come they got that promotion? How come they got that family? How come they got that husband? How come they got that wife? How come they got those kids and I got these kids, right? We, we can look all over the place and find a whole lot of things like, God, how come that grace came over there and it didn't come here? But we missed the point because his grace came here more than enough, more than I need. For everything going on in my life, he's given me more than enough grace. So so don't focus on the grace that's been handed to somebody else. Celebrate the grace that's been handed right here. It's been apportioned to you more than you need. Verse 8 says this. He says, this is why it says when he, he being Jesus, ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Here the Apostle Paul quotes Psalm chapter 68. If you read it in your Bible or or, or your Bible app, you'll see a little footnote right here, and it's going to tell you this is Psalm 68, I think it's verse 18, yeah, 18. Psalm 68, 18 that he's quoting. So he's quoting this psalm, and it's interesting the psalm that he chooses to quote because Psalm 68 is a celebration song of God's victory moving from Mount Sinai in the wilderness where the Ten Commandments were given to Moses and the children of Israel were wandering through the wilderness, coming from Mount Sinai all the way to Mount Zion. Zion's the mountain in Jerusalem where the temple was built and where God's throne is established, where God sits enthroned at the temple. And so it's a song of celebration of God moving from a place of law to a place where he rules, to a place where he sits on the throne, and and Paul applies it to Jesus. He says this is a messianic psalm. This is a a, a picture of what Jesus is going to do, of how Jesus is going to move from one place to rule in a different place. And then he goes on to expound on it. And he says, what does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Now this is some difficult language. What are we talking about? Ascended and descended? Like, I know that means up and down, but, but what are we ascending to? What are we descending to? When I used to read this passage, I, I thought he descended. Anytime I see descended, I assume that means when Jesus died, him going into hell, taking the, key, the, the keys of sin and death from Satan. But that's not what it's talking about in this specific passage. Yes, that happened. We just sang about it, right? He, he descended, but that's not what he's talking about here. When it says that he descended, he's talking about he descended from heaven and came to earth. That he descended to the lower earthly regions. In other words, that he lowered himself, he humbled himself, he condescended to become like us. He, he gave up some of his authority. Jesus gave up some of his opportunity to rule, to sit there and said, you know what, you're worth it. I love you enough. I, I think Josh explained it so well during worship. He chased us down. Man, he was willing to come after us. That that, that song, What a Beautiful Name, puts it really well too. It says, you didn't want heaven without us, so Jesus, you brought heaven down. 
He descended to our level. He came down to meet us eye to eye, face to face. One of the the most effective postures in parenting is to get down on your kid's level and and look them in the eye, right? Like when I'm up here and and Judah's down here, it's really easy for me to miss him. It's easy for, for, for it to be intimidating and in his face. But, but when I can get down on his level and communicate with him eye to eye, when I can speak gently but firmly to him and, and draw the lines, that he receives it in a different way. And Jesus said, you know what, I'm not just going to sit up here on high and shout down to you, look at me and get right with me. I'm going to come down. Amen. And I'm going to get right on your level. I'm going to look you right in the eye. In fact, I'm going to take on your eyes. I'm going to take on your challenge. I'm going to take on your struggle. I'm going to take on your temptations and experience what it's like to be you. And he got down on our level, and praise God he did. And then he ascended. In other words, he's back in heaven because he accomplished what he came here to accomplish. He lived the sinless life. He died on the cross. He was buried for three days, and he rose again. And now he's alive again at the right hand of the Father. What does he ascended mean except he descended? He came down to us, but then he ascended again back to his rightful place. Amen? Verse 11 says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. It's what we call the five-fold ministry that Jesus selected for us apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, that that these five different ministry gifts that were selected and placed into the church, that they are a gift to the church. This is, again, verse 11. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. Why? To equip his people for works of service. What is my job description as a pastor? It's right there. To equip God's people for works of service. Who is God's people? That's us, right? My my job is to help you get ready to serve. Why? So that the body of Christ may be built up. Here's what you need to know, church. You have a ministry. You are a minister. If you're a Christian, if you've received Jesus as as your salvation, as your Lord and your Savior, if you've given your life to him, you have a ministry. Now, you may look at your life today and say, I can't help nobody. I barely can help myself. I need some help right now. But if you receive Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. God's got a ministry for you. Now, your ministry might look different than somebody else who's maybe a little further along in their maturation. But there's a ministry that God has given to you. And my job, the church's job, the staff's job, our job is to prepare you for works of service. Why? Because you have a ministry. Because you are a minister. I saw some really interesting statistics this week uh, about church involvement and, and what that does for people. There have been a lot of very high-profile suicides recently. Anthony Bourdain probably most recently. Um, and, and some really awful things usually happen when there's a celebrity suicide. The, the suicide gets so much attention because it affects so many of us that there, there's always a spike in suicides after a celebrity suicide. Um, it, it becomes to be glamorized. And, and I don't think the media does this on purpose. I'm not somebody who's just trying to bash the media at every... Like we, why does the media publicize it? Because we listen to it, right? Because we care. They're looking for ratings. And so that, that's why they do it. But there's always this effect. Anytime a high-profile celebrity kills themselves, a whole lot more everyday Americans take the same step. And so 
There, there have been some articles out there on, on suicide prevention and depression and anxiety and what we can do to combat this. And so there's a really interesting article by a pastor named Peter Haas. Uh, he, he's a pastor up in Minnesota. I read his blog, and, and he's got some awesome statistics. He said this. He said, people who attend church regularly are 22% less likely to be clinically depressed. This is according to a study by the University of Saskatchewan. So our Canadian friends did some research for us, and they discovered this, that, that people who regularly attend church are 22% less likely to be clinically depressed. Now, we've got to be careful with stats like that because you say that, and somebody in the room is clinically depressed, and it's like, okay, well, what's wrong with me? We're not saying that, that Christians can't be clinically depressed. In fact, Peter Haas, this pastor who wrote this, he, he shares his story of clinical depression. Uh, and so he was obviously regularly in a church while he went through this. So, so we're not saying you're immune from it. We're not saying it can't happen. We're not saying, man, if you're depressed, just go to church and all your problems are going to go away. That's not reality. What we are saying is this. There is something about church involvement. There is something about church engagement that makes that less likely. That reduces our chances. So these researchers, their first thought was this. Well, people who go to church, they have community. They have friends. They have people around them. And so that's got to be a differentiator. That's the reason why they're less likely to suffer depression. But what they found out was even when compared against other people who are in life-giving community that's outside of a church, Christians were still less likely to have clinical depression. Now, obviously, these are secular researchers. They've missed the obvious answer. is people who are involved in a church are probably more likely to have a relationship with God. Right? They're more likely to have access to the joy of the Lord. They're more likely to have access to the peace of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So, so again, this doesn't mean you're not ever going to go through anything. It doesn't mean if you are going through depression or anxiety, it doesn't mean if you're on antidepressants right now that there's something wrong with you or you're a failure as a Christian. That's not what we're saying. What we are saying is this. Godly community helps. Relationship with Jesus helps a lot. But, but it went on to, to, to share this. Um, people who serve in a weekly ministry at church, so not just once a month, not just on occasion, not just every time, man, some big event comes around, but serve on a consistent basis, a weekly basis in a church, rate themselves seven times happier than Christians who merely attend church or listen to a podcast. So going to church helps. Serving in church helps a lot. Why? Because you have a ministry, and you are a minister. And you're never going to be fulfilled in life. You're never going to discover that place where, man, God has called you to until you begin to pour out into other people, until you begin to impact other people. Now, I'm not saying the only place to serve is at church. I'm not saying the only way you can walk in ministry is to be serving in a church. I'm not saying any of that. What I am saying is this. The odds that you're going to be happy and fulfilled are a heck of a lot higher if you're serving in a church than if you're not. Why? Because life isn't about you. Church isn't about you anymore. You know what happens when you begin to serve? You come, and instead of raiding the worship team, you be like, well, my favorite worship leader wasn't here today, and I don't really like that vocalist as much, and why do we do that song again? Right? And instead of critiquing the pastor, well, he was decent today, but it wasn't his best, or man, he's good, but he's not as good as pastor so-and-so. Like, instead of those things, which we do when we're consumers, when we come for ourselves, now the attention isn't on me, it's not, out of, not, not on when, what I think of the church service, it's man, what difference can I make in impacting somebody's life? Who can I welcome into God's house? What kid can I share Jesus with in Kid City? How can I bring glory to him, and, and in what way? Thank you. 
And oh, by the way, you're seven times more likely to rate yourself high on the happiness scale than if you don't. Why? Because God made you this way. Because God designed you this way. This is what he's done for us. This is part of the life worthy of the calling we received. He says, hey, now I need you to serve. I need you to get into a church, and I need you to get equipped, and I need you to use that equipping to build up the church, to build up God's people, to build up the body of Christ. So today we have sign-up sheets for every ministry. I'm just kidding. We don't. (laughs) Maybe we should have, but we don't. If you're not serving and you want to get involved, talk to me or one of our leaders. We'd love to help you find that opportunity. We don't have ministries where I'm like, oh, my gosh, we're desperate for more people. We've got to make a ministry push. We're reading verse by verse through God's word, and this is what God's word is teaching us. So this is what we're going to talk about. Man, it's important for us to serve. It helps us. It blesses us. Let's read it again. Verse 11. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service. Why? So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and we become mature, attaining in the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So who needs to be serving in ministry? Anybody who's got some maturity left to get to. If you are completely mature as a Christian, if you've reached that place, then you don't need to serve in ministry. You're off the hook, which means none of us are off the hook. We ain't there yet, right? Look at the person next to you and say, that ain't you. Look at the person on the other side and say, that ain't me. Right? None of us are fully mature yet. None of us have gotten to the place where we're just like Jesus yet. And serving in ministry helps us get closer. It helps us get more like Jesus. It's important. God wants us to mature. He wants us to grow up. Verse 14 says, Then he will no lo- we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Paul compares immature Christians, baby Christians, to infants. I don't have an infant, but I do have, like I said, a three-year-old and a two-year-old. And here's what I found with my three-year-old and my two-year-old. My three-year-old has some work to do. My two-year-old is an angel. She's amazing. She's incredible, except when she's influenced by the three-year-old. So so Alexa is the most obedient, submissive, like perfect little child. She's incredible, unless she's trying to be like Judah. And, and, And if Judah's being disobedient and Judah's trying to do this thing and that thing and he's not listening to us, then Alexa will be like him. And here's what Paul says. He says, infants are tossed This way and that way. Back and forth. Infants, one day they got it right, and the next day they got it wrong. One minute they're doing what they're supposed to, and the next minute they're rebelling. Man, if you've had kids, you know they can go from like screaming temper tantrum to the sweetest little angel like this, right? Like like it can just happen. They just flip a switch, and all of a sudden they're great, or vice versa. Everything was going good. This is a good day. My kids are awesome. I'm an amazing parent. I knew I knew how to do this. And then 30 seconds later, you're like, Calling mom and dad, help, I don't know what to do, I'm not ready for this. Right? Why? Because infants, they go from here to there in a heartbeat. And Paul says, some of you Christians are just like that. One minute you're great and you're pursuing Jesus and then something happens and it's like squirrel. And it's over. Right? And you miss it. And he says, look, God's calling you to maturity. It's okay to be that way for a season. Every single one of us was a baby. Every single one of us was a toddler. Every single one of us was like that. But praise God, we've grown up. Praise God, we've matured. Praise God, we're not that way anymore. 
And in the spirit, we need to not be that way anymore. God's calling us to maturity, church. He's calling us to grow up. Look at the person next to you say, grow up. Don't you love helping me preach my message? He says instead, verse 15, instead what? Instead of being infants, instead of being immature, instead of being tossed back and forth by the waves and every wind of teaching and being deceived, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. Church, we're really bad at speaking the truth in love. See, I believe that there's two kinds of Christians and there's two kinds of churches. There's Christians who are really good at speaking truth and there's Christians who are really good at speaking love and there's churches who are really good at emphasizing truth and there's churches that are really good at emphasizing love and we're not good at putting those two things together. But you know who is? Jesus Christ. Book of John says that Jesus, chapter 1, Jesus came from the Father full of grace and full of truth. And in the same way, we are called to be full of truth, but to speak it fully in love. There's a tension there. There's a difficulty there. It's easy to be all truth, and it's easy to be all love. It's easy to pick one or the other. It's hard to find the middle. But God's called his people to do both. See, it's not really truth if it's not spoken in love. And it's not really love if it's not spoken in truth. It's not It's not loving to dumb down the word of God and to write out things that the Bible says so that we can, man, make people like us or make people feel good about themselves. That's not love. But it's not truthful to preach at people and to put them down and not present the grace that comes with Jesus Christ and not speak it in a way that I want what's best for you. Not because I'm better than you, not because I'm speaking down to you, not because I'm trying to prove that somehow there's something wrong with you. Man, there's something wrong with all of us. And even with that, Jesus came down and he got on our level and he loves you right where you're at and he's got a plan for you right where you're at and it's not over yet. He's called us to speak the truth in love and I could do a whole message on those few words but we ain't got time for that. It's Father's Day. You want to go eat so I'm going to shut up but take it with you. Speaking the truth in love. He says this, to become in, in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. In other words, the head is already mature, but the, but the body's not. You ever seen a big old head on somebody who ain't big? <laughs> my son, God bless him. I've been dogging him all service. I love Judah with all my heart. He's my, like, my favorite kid ever. I have so much fun with him. My son was born. He was 5 pounds, 11 ounces at birth. He was in the 25th percentile in length, 25th percentile in weight, 90th percentile in head. He was a little alien baby, right? He was just all head. Poor Melody, man. You think you got a 5-pound, 11-ounce baby? It's easy to deliver. Not when it's all head, it's not. Right? Like, that's painful, I assume. Um, <laughs> happy Father's Day to me. Um, <laughs> as he's matured, his body's starting to catch up to his head. What's the word of God calling us to? Same body, it's time for us to catch up with the head. It's time for us to be more like the head. The head is mature. Jesus is the head and he is there. He is fully arrived and now the body's got to catch up. Now the body's called to maturity. Now the body's called to get to that place. Last verse for you and then we'll be done. Verse 16. For from him, from Jesus, the whole body, everybody say that means me. 
The whole body, that's all of us, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love. How? As each part does its work. In other words, when there's parts that aren't doing their work, the rest of us can't grow the way we're supposed to. I need you. I'll never be the pastor I'm called to be if you don't grow and mature. You'll never be the follower of Jesus you're called to be if I don't grow and mature. We all get better when one of us gets better. We all grow when one of us grows. Why is it important for us to set aside some Sunday nights? And man, I picked this church because they don't have Sunday night church, praise God. Right? Like, why is it important for us to take Sunday nights to grow for seven weeks? Because we all need to be better. Because we all need to be more like Jesus. Because the body needs to catch up with the head. Amen? We're called to maturity. We're called to be more like him. As we look into the mirror of God's word, we discover things that aren't quite where they need to be. And the Apostle Paul says this, I urge you, brothers and sisters, I urge you, children of the good, good Father, I urge you, believer in Jesus, to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Would you pray with me, church? Father God, we we thank you for your word. We thank you for the urging of the Apostle Paul that your Holy Spirit inspired him to write this, to give this to us. God, we ask you today to help us to apply this to our lives. God, don't let us fool ourselves like the book of James says and and to hear your word and leave and not do what it says. But God, help us to apply it. Help us to, to aspire to a better place in our walk with you. God, I speak maturity over your church. Speak maturity over the leadership of this church, God, over myself. God, we want to be like Jesus. We want to be like the head. God, help this body to grow. Help us to grow the way you've called us to grow, Lord, that each one of us, every supporting ligament, every part, every responsibility you've given us, that we'd all grow together, that we'd be the body you've called us to be, Lord. We thank you that you've given us a calling that's so incredible. We thank you that you've given us an opportunity to know you, and to pursue you. And we ask you, God, to help us to grow. In Jesus' name.